welcome to Valley Church. I'm so excited to see all of your faces tonight. Happy that you're here and um, expecting God to just continue to meet us here. That's one of the most beautiful things about what we're doing is we're not just singing songs together. We're not just reading from an old book together, but we actually anticipate that um, God wants to talk to you. God wants to um, work in you, that he loves you. He wants to be more of your friend than he is already. And so um, let's become more aware of that. Let's have that be on our minds right now as we open the scriptures that God's here and he's happy that you're here and he wants to be with you and speak to you. So um, tonight we get to take a dive into maybe one of the most famous of Jesus's miracles. Um, There is so much here in the passage. I've read this like I don't know how many times in my years of reading the Bible and in just this week of studying. It's just a treasure trove of so many cool, beautiful things. Um, So I'm excited to just unpack some of them. Um, There's a lot to chew on, even just at face value of, you know, your first read through of this passage, and then even more if we just peel back a few layers. So we are in Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 13. This is the feeding of the 5,000. Yeah, (laughs) my thoughts exactly, Kevin. Uh, Let's read the whole passage. It's 13 through 21 of chapter 14. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Let's pray. Father, would you speak to each and every one of us as we um, open the scriptures, as we look deeply and think deeply about them? Uh, It's asked that you would speak to each of us that we would get a sense of your presence, a sense that you want to talk to us and that you want to meet us, that we might have some kind of encounter with you, that you would, um, through this teaching and through our worship and our fellowship, that you would encourage us, strengthen us, that you would correct us and teach us. Um, So we're here to listen to you as we open the Bible. We love you, and all this is for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's look at um, the beginning, Matthew 13 or chapter 14, verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, crowds followed him on foot from the towns. So our passage begins with Jesus hearing about something that had happened. So if we backtrack, um, 
That could mean, what had happened could mean one of two things. The narrative is actually kind of choppy, starting in chapter 14, uh, but we learn about two things that Jesus could be referring to. One, Matthew tells us that when Herod hears reports about Jesus's ministry, he thinks it's John the Baptist back from the dead, and he's kind of scared. Um, so that could be the thing that Jesus had heard about. Or the second thing uh, is a flashback that Matthew tells about in verse 3 about how and why and the circumstances surrounding John the Baptist's murder. So in verse 13, when, Jesus, when it says, when Jesus heard what had happened, it could be referring to either the fact that Herod heard about Jesus and thought it was John the Baptist, or more likely, I think it could re be referring to the fact that Jesus had heard about John's death. Either way, Jesus is anticipating some type of conflict with Herod. Either Herod's hearing about him and is kind of gaining some interest uh, about Jesus, or John's been killed and Jesus is sensing the need to withdraw and get out of the, get out of the way. So Jesus withdraws from the area. It's likely that Jesus is actually trying to get out of uh, Herod's jurisdiction. So that borderline where Herod ruled versus where Herod didn't rule was near there. Jesus, most of his ministry in that Galilee area was basically right in Herod's backyard, like in the capital city of where Herod ruled in that area. So Jesus is trying to avoid some conflict, um, at least premature conflict right now. That's what he has done a handful of other times in the Gospel of Matthew. We read about it in the other Gospels too. I think the Gospel of John says that um, Jesus would talk about how it wasn't his time yet. And so he was kind of carefully measuring what ministry he was doing versus how much like conflict and whatever was he gonna kind of um, arise out of people if he kept doing it. And so in this case, he decides I need to get out of here and he's wise and avoiding unnecessary conflict. What's crazy about this verse, though, is not that Jesus was trying to get away from people um, with his disciples. It says that he was uh, going by boat privately to a solitary place. It doesn't necessarily mean he was alone, but just kind of withdrawing from whatever crowds were there. Um, the crazy thing about this verse is uh, that thousands of people follow him around a lake, not on their own boats, but on foot walking around this huge lake. It's called the Sea of Galilee. I don't know why, it's a big lake. I think it's roughly like two-thirds the size of Lake Tahoe. Um, so it's, it's really big. Uh, Jesus sets out in a boat, and he's heading off for some other part of the lake, out of, maybe out of Herod's jurisdiction. And uh, the people try to head him off and to see where he's going, and they literally just start walking around the lake to meet him wherever he takes the boat to shore. So imagine if it was like Detroit Lake or something that we know, um, which is much smaller, but imagine a crowd of thousands of people walking around Detroit, and then as they keep passing other little towns and villages along the way, that number just keeps growing, and then all of a sudden, there's like seven to 10,000, maybe even 15,000 people. So when Matthew says 5,000, we'll read this at the end, he's counting the men, and that's a rough estimate, so there's likely two to three times that amount of people in this crowd by the time they arrive to Jesus. So it is a lot of people. Julie, I put these slides out of order, um, the pictures that is. Can you show us the pictures of the crowds from the end? So this first one is, of that's like roughly 3,000 people, I think, according to Google. That's maybe roughly 10,000 people. So I mean, just imagine some like countryside that has 10 or 15,000 people walking <laughs> looking for this boat that Jesus is on, finding out where he's gonna uh, take the boat to shore. Um, it's kind of wild. Verse 14, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. 
So Jesus was seeking some kind of solitude with his disciples. Maybe he needed to go be by himself with the Father. Maybe he needed to grieve over news that he just heard if he had just heard about John the Baptist's death. Either way, what could have been seen as an interruption to what Jesus originally wanted to do, Jesus instead sees an opportunity for ministry and his heart is just full of compassion and he wants to heal them. Um, the word here for Jesus feeling compassion is this idea of feeling something like viscerally deep in your gut. So he like just feels so much care and compassion for these people that he just like has to help them and do something. So he begins to heal the sick people in this crowd. Thousands of them likely. I would imagine this is like a healing marathon that goes on for hours and hours. Um, there's this episode of The Chosen, which um, if you haven't watched The Chosen, I would highly, highly recommend it. It is a beautiful show that puts really good and also mostly accurate images of what, what these stories that we read in scripture might have actually been like. So the show is amazing. I would highly recommend watching it. Um, but there's an episode of The Chosen dedicated to a passage earlier in Matthew, Matthew 4, 24. And there's an episode called Matthew 4, 24. And it just is about how Jesus healed people. And people were bringing tons and tons of people to Jesus to heal them. But the episode centers around the disciples kind of sitting in their camp, sharing all their stories of how they met Jesus and what it's been like to follow him. They're getting in huge, big arguments. And as the hours go by, they're kind of frustrated. Jesus is still off doing miracles and healing people. And they're just sitting back there. And then finally at nightfall, Jesus kind of limps back into camp and he hobbles to his bed and his, his mom walks over to him and like washes his feet and helps him begin to rest so he can go to sleep. It's this beautiful picture of the humanity of Jesus. Like, yes, the miraculous healings that he's, that he's doing are amazing, but it, like, it seemed to have a cost. He was absolutely dead and drained at the end of that day of healing people. And so I imagine in our passage that it might be something similar to that. There's thousands and thousands of people, and he's just healing so many of them. And if he did, in fact, just hear about John's murder, he's got to be devastated. And so what happened to be for him, probably some you know, emotional fatigue to say the least, he's still deeply moved in his gut and is, has such compassion for these people that he heals them. Hours go by and the disciples are starting to see the sun set and they've eaten the food that they have. Maybe the crowd has eaten what they brought or maybe no one brought anything because this, maybe this meeting was rather spontaneous. Um, but they're like, okay, we're gonna run into a problem here. People are gonna start to get hungry. We don't have food. So the disciples wanna help. Verse 15, as evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Um, so the disciples are you know, feeling some compassion for the crowd. They're worried about the crowd's hunger. Perhaps they're also trying to um, help Jesus get back to that solitude that maybe he was seeking in the first place, but Jesus had a different idea. Um, one scholar wrote, to send the crowds away, as suggested by the disciples, would achieve the isolation which had been sought in verses 13 and 14. But instead, Jesus challenges the disciples themselves to show compassion to the crowds as Jesus had been doing. Verse 16, Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. There is so much in those three verses, some of which we'll come back to in a little bit. Um, but at the face value, Jesus asked them to do 
the impossible and to feed these people. And they show them all that they could find. Um, John tells us that what the food that they have might have come from uh, this little boy's lunch, basically, that he packed. It was five loaves is kind of maybe a misleading word. It's more like five little rolls. Um, and two fish, maybe even like a container of dried or pickled fish is more, more likely what someone would have. Um, it's like a common lunch for a poor person in this day. So the disciples bring this to him, and then Jesus says in the original language, hold my beer and bring me the food. <laughs> uh, it's a beautiful image, honestly, of the disciples instructed by Jesus to minister to the people, and they look at what they have, and they think, this is not enough. And Jesus says, bring me what you have, and we'll make it work. So we'll come back to that more in a little bit. Uh, verse 19. He directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. Jesus tells the people to take a seat. Um, it's likely spring at this time. The grass is maybe a little greener and softer. He tells them all to sit down. But it's a little bit more um, interesting than that. Um, there's a phrase that we don't really use. I think it's a British phrase where you tell someone to tuck in and it means like not just sit down, but like it's time to eat, get ready to eat. Um, so the word Jesus uses, in, he's inviting people to recline, um, which is a position they were kind of used to eating in. He's inviting them where they would normally sit at a low table on some kind of cushion or a blanket, um, and they maybe would lean on one elbow as they would have a meal together. Um, some scholars think that the, the reclining position indicated by Jesus' request to have them sit down is kind of the way that you would eat at maybe a formal banquet or a feast. Um, so Jesus isn't just telling people, you know, sit down, take a load off. He is very, I think, clearly inviting people to join him for a meal, to join him for dinner. It's table fellowship. So in the first century, to recline at a table with someone, to sit down and share a meal with someone was to accept them as a person, which is why the Pharisees really didn't like when Jesus ate meals with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners, because he was accepting them and showing them friendship and kindness and hospitality. So Jesus has just initiated a, I don't know, seven to 15,000 person dinner party on that hillside. Um, and Matthew doesn't even really describe the actual miracle in detail how Jesus did it. He just says that Jesus took the food, he gave thanks or a blessing over it, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and then the disciples distributed it to the people. Um, that combination of those things that Jesus did with the bread is actually very intentional. And again, we'll talk about it more. Um, it says he took the bread, he blessed it. Um, he likely said this traditional prayer, which if you watch The Chosen, uh, you'll know this prayer actually is very common, um, but it would be this. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. So he takes bread, he maybe says that prayer, that blessing over it, and he breaks it and he gives it to the disciples. Those words, took, blessed, broke, and gave, are the words that would uh, come to be used when Jesus shares the Last Supper with the disciples. And they also reinforce this image of a household meal. Those were a very common phrase um, with Jesus as kind of this new, ahead of this new household meal that he's sharing. Um, he's functioning as like the father in this new family. And he's the one initiating the beginning of this feast, breaking the bread and giving it to his family. Finally, verses 20 and 21. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. 
So just imagine how long uh, that would take. Jesus, I'm, I'm just thinking, I'm guessing here, Jesus has the bread and the fish himself, right? They gave it to him. And the disciples keep coming back with their baskets and he keeps breaking more and more and giving them more and more to wander through a crowd of 15,000 people, maybe. And it says they all ate and were satisfied. They were full. Not only was there enough food to make everyone in that huge crowd satisfied, but there was even more after that. Each disciple had a basket. Uh, each disciple filled up a basket with leftovers. And then in the last verse, Matthew makes sure that we know the scope of this miracle. It tells us there were 5,000 men, not including women and children. So again, anywhere from seven to 15 or 20,000 people um, is a lot. So that's kind of the face value. That's, that's the passage that we know, that we love, that we've read. There are two areas that I think are, I'll say they're interesting and they are maybe potential distractions, but um, I'll share them with you. One, there's a temptation to um, allegorize this passage, um, which is generally not a good idea with the Bible or the stories of Jesus. It can be an interesting rabbit trail to go down sometimes. Maybe, maybe there's some truth um, here and there. But in this passage, um, and some of you might have read these if you've kind of been studying the Bible for a while, so that's why I'll talk about them. But some scholars think that the five loaves represent the first five books of the Old Testament or the Pentateuch. Um, the Torah, and then the two fish would represent the law and the prophets, meaning to them that this meal would symbolize, uh, was symbolic of scripture, that Jesus was um, feeding them a meal of the Old Testament. Um, some would think that the 12 baskets full of leftovers represent the 12 tribes of Israel, and those being full at the leftover could mean that with Jesus as the bread of life, um, there is always enough for anyone who'd wanna join God's family, those things are true. Um, I'm just not convinced that that's what Matthew is actually trying to show us here in the text. Um, another interesting little rabbit trail to go down, which I think is more, more probable, um, but I would consider it a rabbit trail, is uh, that we take all four accounts of this miracle. So this, I think, is unique. If it's not the only one, it's one of a few miracles that all four gospel authors tell. Um, and if you kind of take a composite image of all of those, um, what you can see amongst an amazing miracle where Jesus fed thousands of people is um, a potential, like a would-be military revolution. So Mark describes, um, when he tells this story, he describes people being sat down in groups of 100 and groups of 50, which were um, basically kind of military designations of the numbers of people. It would be like, I don't know what they are in the U.S. military, but like a battalion and then a platoon or something. Those were specific numbers that they were dividing people up into. So Mark has this kind of military image of people grouped in specific groupings. And then just logically, there's the question of why were there so many people? Like the other miracles of Jesus were not like this. Why were there so many people? I mean, 10,000 people. Um, it, it seems like it had to be an intentional. Uh, at the end of, in 21, when Matthew tells us there's 5,000 men, it says besides women and children, that can also mean 5,000 uh, not including or excluding women and children, meaning that there's only men at this particular gathering, which would further the kind of militaristic, revolutionary meaning of this uh, story because only the men, if it was gonna be the beginning of some, some type of military coup, only the men would join that. Um, in John's account of the story, he tells us that um, after Jesus feeds everybody, they're so amazed they're like, surely this is the prophet that we've been waiting for. And then John tells us that they um, wanted to seize Jesus and make him king by force, is what John says. 
So basically, there's a way to kind of read all the different tellings of this story to think that maybe um, 5,000 or so men joined up together thinking that they were going to take up arms and begin some type of revolution against Rome, which is true in that uh, Israel expected the Messiah to come and to um, be this force, this military force to free them from their oppressors. Um, That is true. Uh, but what's clear is that that is not who Jesus is. And so what Jesus does is that he has compassion on these people and he heals them and he shares a meal with them. So those are um, interesting kind of thoughts of what, what the passage could mean for us and maybe potentially true. But again, I'm not convinced that that's what Matthew is really focusing on and trying to show us, which brings me to a really fast side note. Um, That is our first goal when we want to try to understand scripture, which is to do everything we can to determine what the author is trying to tell his original audience. That is our goal. That's why I feel like I've said the name Matthew like a million times. Like that is the word I say more than anything from up here. What Matthew is trying to say, what Matthew is meaning, what Matthew is saying, um, because that's our first step. And, And it's one of the most important steps that we don't kind of bypass wondering, okay, how was, what was Matthew trying to say to someone in the first century who was reading this? Um, we need to do that before we try to bridge the gap and figure out, and what does the Holy Spirit want to say to us now today? Um, once we have an idea of what Matthew meant for his audience, then we can move on from there. Um, so there's some interesting allegorical options and interesting kind of military revolution reading based on all four gospels, but I think what Matthew is doing what he has basically been doing the whole time throughout the, the Gospel of Matthew is showing us that Jesus is the fulfillment and the continuation of the story of Israel. There's two primary ways that Matthew's doing this. One, showing us that Jesus is greater than Elisha and Moses, which might seem random, but let's peel back the layers a little bit. Um, I feel fairly certain that this is one of the main things that Matthew's doing with this story. He's bringing two Old Testament stories interview with the way he's telling this miracle. The first is kind of a random story uh, that I have read but did not remember. Um, and so it's about the prophet Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 4. You don't have to turn there. We'll have it on the screen. But I'll read it for you, and I would imagine the, the parallels will be uh, pretty clear. A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe grain along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this before a hundred men, his servant asked. But Elisha answered, give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. So Elisha has a hundred men to feed. Someone brings him 20 loaves of bread, and he tells his servant, Give them something to eat. And the servant's like, how can I do this? I have 20 loaves of bread and there's 100 people. And likely, again, a little roll. Um, Elisha says that the Lord is going to do this. Give the people the food and there will be some left over even. I think this story was like certainly on Matthew's mind as he reflected on his memory of this miracle and recorded it for us. Um, but Matthew wasn't just saying, oh, Jesus is similar to Elisha. Uh, he's very clearly showing us that he's far greater, where Elisha multiplies the bread five times for the 100 people. There were 20 loaves for 100 people. Jesus multiplies the meal by 1,000. 
there's five loaves and there are 5,000 people and, and actually more than that. So Matthew is showing us that Jesus and even greater Elisha. He's also bringing to mind, it's slightly more abstract, but he's bringing to mind the image of Israel in the wilderness, showing us Jesus as a new Moses, a new leader of God's people. So the first thing is Matthew sets this story that we just read up by showing that Jesus, in verse 13, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. So that word solitary place is one in Greek, it's eremos, which means wilderness. Um, its Hebrew counterpart for that word is midbar, which is a very, very loaded word when it comes to the Old Testament particularly and the whole Bible. Um, the book of Numbers is in Hebrew actually called Bamidbar, which means in the wilderness, which is where God's people were in that book. The wilderness as a theme is where God tests people. It is where they, God's people in Israel went through many trials. Um, it's where Jesus was tested by Satan. Um, and it's where God's people were for many, many years before he led them into the promised land. So Matthew paints this picture of Jesus, like Moses, um, out in the wilderness with the wandering and meandering people of God. There's thousands of them. Um, under Moses' leadership in the book of Exodus, the people of God complain about being hungry, and God provides bread from heaven for them, or manna. And now with Jesus, he himself takes these five loaves of bread and multiplies them to feed God's people out in the wilderness. Again, slightly more abstract, uh, but the link is like definitely there. Um, if you are in the first century reading Matthew's biography about Jesus, and you read through this, you're gonna see Elisha and Moses in what Jesus is doing, but an even better version of them. Um, is that Scout? I think it's my little, my little boy. <laughs> Let go is what he's saying. Um, the next thing, I think Matthew in telling this story wants us to think about the feeding of the 5,000 related to the Lord's Supper and also related to what we can call the Messianic banquet. So I think Matthew wants us to think about this coming meal that Jesus will share with his disciples um, where he will take bread. We talked about this. Take bread, uh, bless it or give thanks, break it and give it to his disciples. But in that meal, he said, Jesus said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And whenever you eat it, do so in remembrance of me. So I think Matthew wants us to think, to ref reflect on the Lord's Supper, the communion meal, as we read this passage, just as this beautiful foreshadowing. But also look ahead to something called the Messianic Banquet. That's not a, a label or a phrase you'll find in the Bible. It's just what Bible nerds call this concept um, that starts in the Old Testament. Isaiah and Ezekiel primarily and, and others, prophets, refer to this future feast or banquet when the Messiah comes to deliver Israel, when he restores them, when he defeats their enemy, part of that celebration will be an epic banquet with like the best rich food and wine and everyone will eat and drink and be so satisfied. And so when Matthew tells us that Jesus had everyone recline as if this was some type of feast or banquet, and he tells us that everyone ate until they were very, very full and satisfied, and then there was even more left over. This is imagery that would make a first century Jew think about Israel's abundant feasts that they would have when Messiah finally rescued them. And it's also something that we, as the church right now, get to look forward to, um, an epic feast that we sometimes call the marriage supper of the lamb, and it's when Satan is defeated and Jesus returns to fully establish his rule and reign in a new heaven and earth, we will sit, actually sit at a table and feast together and be satisfied in a way that I don't even know that we could imagine right now. 
So that kind of in summary of the passage, I, I humbly think is the answer to um, the question of what is Matthew trying to say to his original audience. Um, He's making a rich and thorough case that is beautiful about how Jesus is the continuation and the fulfillment of the story of Israel. He's the better Elisha, the better Moses, the host of this beautiful feast that all God's people will share in the new kingdom. He is the Messiah, he's our savior. And this miraculous meal is proof and also a, a preview of what's to come. So that's the main thing that we can grab and hold on to as we think about this passage. And then two things that I think in my mind, uh, maybe the Lord put on my heart for our church that's particularly important and practical for our, how we do our church, um, how we do church together, um, things that we can practice. The first one, it sounds random at first, eat until your eyes shine. So Jesus is creating a new family in this passage. He is the head of this new household. He's invited 10, 15,000 people to recline and share a meal with him. He takes the bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he shares it. This is a family meal, and it is something that Jesus does very often. If you read through the Gospels, Jesus often eats with people. In fact, he did it so much that he was accused by the Pharisees of being a glutton and a drunkard. So in this story, we read that he provides enough so that everyone not just could have a little bit, but everyone is satisfied, completely satisfied and full. So um, shortly after my wife and I got married, uh, we went to Israel. This was in 2012. And we went to this place called Genesis Land, which sounds kind of cheesy. But um, I bet you are, if I ask you to imagine what does Genesis Land look like, I bet we are thinking of the exact same thing. Because it's like these beautiful, rolling Middle East desert hills that are just exactly what you think about if I said, hey, imagine Abraham tending to a flock of sheep. That's exactly where we were in Genesis Land in Israel. And we walk into this tent, and this guy, who looks probably exactly like Abraham looked, um, I don't know that, but he, he walks to our table, and he sits us down, and he starts talking about um, ancient Israel <laughs> hospitality as it relates to food. And he basically said, um, when you entertain people, when you have people sit down with you, it's a sacred, precious moment, and um, you need to feed people until they are truly satisfied. And you'll know they're truly satisfied when you can see their eyes shine. I think maybe he had said something about that's the evidence that your soul is full, that when your eyes kind of glisten or shine. And I've never forgot about that. It was like a very beautiful moment. And they, they brought out food. It was pita and hummus and olives and I think some type of chicken. And it was one of the best meals that I have ever had. It's to this day one of my favorite meals that I like to make for our family. Um, and they brought out food more and more until we said, we are full. And they would look at our eyes and say, yeah, you are. Um, there is something spiritually and theologically rich about table fellowship. God moves in special ways when people sit around a table and share a meal. We are participating in an echo of the Lord's Supper when we do this. We are proclaiming his death and um, his broken body and his shed blood as our victory until he returns. We're participating in a foretaste of that messianic banquet um, that is to come when we uh, welcome God's beloved children into fellowship and we invite them to sit at our tables and eat. And it's for this reason that we ask and encourage our Valley Church communities to center around sharing a meal together. 
We hope that this table fellowship over meal happens every week. We know that sometimes that just doesn't work for different communities and different seasons, and so that's okay. Um, but it is a simple yet profound rhythm that we really want to cultivate as a church family. It doesn't need to be fancy or formal or anything like that, but it should be a place where each and every person in our church can be seen and loved and then actually, truly, physically nourished and satisfied. Um, and so make lots of food <laughs> in your communities. Um, obviously, we don't want to be wasteful. We don't want to overindulge. And we would certainly would never want to make anyone feel kind of financially strained to make a lot of food. But we want to do this together as a community where we, we pitch in and we make a beautiful feast together. Um, however and whenever it's possible, we hope that our um, church and our community specifically would be a place where there is lots of food and plenty for you to be satisfied where you can eat until your belly is full and your eyes shine. And I think when we do this, we experience a very particular God-designed sense of warmth and love and satisfaction that I, I hope causes us to worship. Um, so yeah, eat until your eyes shine. The last thing, give Jesus what you have. Jesus has the disciples participate in this miracle with him. He tells them to feed the people. They say, we don't have enough to do that. And he says, bring me what you do have. And then the miracle happens. I can't think of a more freeing and healthy way to think about how we serve and love God and others. We can see the needs around us. Hopefully, we are becoming aware of them. Uh, the people in your life who need to hear about Jesus people in your life who need a friend, the people in your life who need someone to invite them around a table, the people in our community who don't have a place to live, children who need a loving home to live in, and so many other things. Uh, Jesus has commissioned us to go into the world. He has said this blanket like, you feed them uh, to us as his disciples. And I don't know about you, but I often think about that, and then I look and consider myself, and I, I see the five roles and a tin of anchovies in my hand, and I'm like, I don't, I don't think I can do this. I don't have what it takes. I'm too broken. I'm too sinful, too cynical, too distracted, too busy with my family and our life goals and hobbies. And sometimes I feel like I'm not even next to Jesus where the miracle would take place. I'm not even in the same room. Uh, I do not have the ability to do the things that God wants me to do. And so now I'm hearing Jesus say, what do you have? Show me, and then bring it to me. Give me what you do have, whatever it is, and I can work with that. Another Bible scholar said that uh, Jesus wants the disciples to learn that God's agents must care for God's flock. And I would just add, God's agents care for God's flock with God's actual power, with the power of the Spirit. We can actually acknowledge honestly what we lack either in gifting or skill or motivation. Uh, we can be honest and consider ourselves with very sober and clear judgment. And in that state of humility can actually be lifted and encouraged by Jesus and filled with his power uh, and the ability of the Spirit um, to be the people that Jesus wants us to be and to do the things that he has for us to do. And I don't know what that is for you. I don't know what God's been stirring in your heart. I don't know what people keep popping up into your life, whether it's at a store or a coffee shop or on Facebook or random encounters with old friends, family asking questions about Jesus or your life. Um, 
Maybe your heart has started to break for something that's broken in our world in a new way. God might be stirring you to feed someone. He might be saying, you go feed them. And if you, like me, look at what you have, you consider who you are and all of your flaws and distractions and um, remember that Jesus asked the disciples to give them what they, what they had and not what they didn't have. Jesus is ready to do things in our midst. <laughs> He's ready to do things through our church, in your family, in your friendships, and in our Salem community. And maybe he will do some of those things um, without you. Maybe he'll, he's God and he's doing things. Maybe he'll do them. But maybe there's some things where he's waiting for you and me to say, here's what I've got and what can you do with this, Lord? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. Um, I'm grateful that um, you are saying things and nudging and moving in this church in ways that I don't know, the ways that I don't need to know, couldn't plan for, because your word is living and active, and it pierces us in the best way possible. And so I pray that as we opened this, as we um, looked deeply and thoughtfully at what you've said through Matthew, that you would move us as a church to be your disciples, to bring our loaves and fish to you, and to be willing to be used by you. Would you help us to be a church that is marked by generous hospitality, where people are seen, loved, and well-fed and nourished around tables? And Father, we look forward to um, the marriage supper of the Lamb, an epic feast where we celebrate that you have won and defeated Satan's sin and death. We thank you for the previews of that that we get to experience as a church. God, I pray that you would bless each person here, encourage and strengthen them. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray.